May 17th, 2016. Dying can be a terrible thing. At this writing, my dad isn't dead, but I fully expect to get the sad news soon. I keep trying to picture him happy. Well, happy in whatever form he knows it, and healthy. I rode my bike into work with the intent of talking with Dad about the feasibility of bringing in a 42 by 72 foot commercial modular building to increase our gift shop space. I've pretty much made up my mind that I'm going to do it, but I wanted him to feel like he was making the decision. His health has been declining steadily since his triple heart bypass surgery in August of 2010, so I use every opportunity to make him feel valued and appreciated by consulting with him on projects that he just can't physically do anymore. I found him in the shed looking for tar and measuring a roll of flashing. He was breathing hard, but I didn't know how much walking he had just done looking for the supplies, and it was 87 degrees outside, with humidity so thick I felt like I was breathing underwater. I didn't think too much of his breathing difficulty and asked if he would meet me over by the gift shop to look at the space and give me his thoughts. He rode up, and got off his golf cart to stand at the fence. Gail had joined us, and we talked for about 10 minutes. They were listing off all of the reasons why this was going to be a monumental task, which was just what they do. I guess they have to say it all out loud, just to know that it's been said, and maybe as a way to think their way through it. My reaction to them is always to let them negate whatever it is until they haven't got any more to say, and then I tell them that I know they will figure out a way. They were still going on about how hard it was going to be to put a roof over and over the mobile home when dad sort of rocked back a little and his eyes seemed to lose focus. I realized that I should have told him to stay on the cart to begin with rather than standing and talking as that just wears him out. He sat in the driver's seat and said my mother knew a roof over guy so maybe she could call him. He seemed to have a hard time staying focused visually and mentally. Gail gave me that he's not doing good look, and we tried to get him to let me take him home. No way. He had stuff on his cart, and Chuck, Scott, and Josh were up on the roof of the Mod Glen waiting for him. Now I was certain that he wasn't feeling right, because he wouldn't have just abandoned his mission to talk to me about the trailer. I told him when I rode up that I had a call in 30 minutes I had to take, and we could do this an hour from now. He didn't mention anyone waiting for him. He wouldn't let me drive him out on his cart and wouldn't let Gail take his cart, shifting him to her cart when he insisted that they needed his cart at the Mod Glen too. So I got on as a passenger on his cart and let him drive us to the Mod Glen. As we passed the kitten cabana, he started shaking so hard that he tucked his left hand up under his right arm. By the time we reached the office, I asked if he was holding his heart on the other side, so obviously he wasn't, and he said that he had tucked his hand up like that because he couldn't control the shaking. I asked if I should call 911, and he said he wasn't having a heart attack. He said that he was just agitated by Gail telling him what to do on the gift shop trailer, after having the crew tell him what to do on the Mod Glen repair. I'm sure no one was telling him what to do. We all know better, but his brain was not firing on all cylinders. When we got to the Modglin, Gail was trying to take his pulse, and he was fending her off agitatedly, so I told her we were fine and sent her away. I went up to the roof and told Chuck what was going on. I figured if I got Gail away from him, he'd calm down. 
Chuck said he'd keep an eye on him. It was 10 a.m. and I took my call. My mother texted me 10 minutes later to let me know that Chuck had managed to get Dad to go home, and they were trying to get him to yield and go to a hospital. He was fighting it, and my mother had a tenant coming to sign a note and mortgage on Passaic. She wanted me to deal with the tenant if he came in the middle of all this mayhem, so I took the golf cart back to their house. When I arrived, Chuck was on the phone with 911, and inside my father was on the floor, covered in a pile of blankets, with a pot in front of him for vomiting. He was shaking and screaming that he was too cold. In between yelling at my mother, begging her not to walk out of his sight, he was crying out in pain. You'd have to know my dad to know. He doesn't cry out in pain. I've seen him take a shard of metal straight into his eyeball that had to be surgically removed without a whimper. I've seen him cut himself all the way to the bone with power tools and never flinch. I figured, like his sense of smell, he just doesn't experience pain the way most people do. For him, a major injury is just an impediment to getting something done and not hardly worth the time to stop the bleeding. Now he was clearly in such pain that he couldn't keep it to himself. Seeing that the situation was a lot worse than I expected, I ran back to the office and picked up the AED machine and the first aid kit and hurried back. While my mother gave him water and salty potato chips, I read the instruction manual for the heart machine. He was still breathing. I didn't have to look because he was yelling out from the laundry room floor. I wanted to be ready to use the machine if his heart stopped. I dreaded that, both the heart-stopping part and being in charge of trying to restart it. I felt totally inept. EMS sent two fire trucks. It took everyone, from both trucks, to get Dad out of the house and into the ambulance. He kept saying he would be fine, but at least he didn't strike out at any of us. One blow and we would need another gurney available. When they loaded him onto the stretcher, they asked if he was six foot four because his feet were several inches too long for the bed. He's only six feet tall, so he must be all in his legs. He wanted to lay his head back, but they didn't have a long enough bed. He rolled his eyes at me as if to say, you send clowns to rescue me and they bring this toy bed. I held his head up as they bounced him over the gravel drive out to the ambulance in the road. Meanwhile, the tenant, Ben, calls and my mother hands me her phone. I tell him to call back tomorrow as we are all dealing with an emergency. My mother looks out the window and sees him leaving and insists that Chuck flag him down to sign the note and mortgage. That meant I had to call Gail out to witness it, all as the ambulance is sitting in the driveway trying to decide if they should take Dad to Pepin Heart Hospital or to Town & Country Hospital to stabilize him first. Ben commends my mother on her amazing work ethic and says he wishes his 34-year-old girlfriend worked as hard. It's been a couple of hours now. I've told Jamie and Howie what's going on. I haven't heard from Chuck or Mom. The last thing she said before leaving the house was that she wasn't going to tell someone who was on vacation. I didn't catch who she was talking about, but she's probably right. There isn't anything any of us can do right now. Just as I finished writing this, my mother emailed and said, his color is back and he's complaining about everything. So back to normal. So he's wanting to go home. If you enjoyed these video blogs of my diary, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you.